Chapter 10, Part 2 of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rob Whelan. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter 10, Tierra del Fuego, Part 2. After having been detained six days in Wigwam Cove by very bad weather, we put to sea on the 30th of December. Captain Fitzroy wished to get westward, to land York and Fuegia in their own country. When at sea we had a constant succession of gales, and the current was against us. We drifted to fifty-seven degrees, twenty-three minutes south. On the 11th of January, 1833, by carrying a press of sail, we fetched within a few miles of the great rugged mountain of York Minster, so called by Captain Cook and the origin of the name of the elder Fuegian when a violent squall compelled us to shorten sail and stand out to sea. The surf was breaking fearfully on the coast, and the spray was carried over a cliff estimated to two hundred feet in height. On the twelfth the gale was very heavy, and we did not know exactly where we were. It was a most unpleasant sound to hear constantly repeated, keep a good lookout to leeward. On the thirteenth the storm raged with its full fury. Our horizon was narrowly limited by the sheets of spray borne by the wind. The sea looked ominous, like a dreary waving plain with patches of drifted snow. Whilst the ship laboured heavily, the albatross glided with its expanded wings right up the wind. At noon a great sea broke over us, and filled one of the whale-boats, which was obliged to be instantly cut away. The poor beagle trembled at the shock, and for a few minutes would not obey her helm. But soon, like a good ship that she was, she righted and came up to the wind again. Had another sea followed the first, our fate would have been decided soon and for ever. We had now been twenty-four days trying in vain to get westward. The men were worn out with fatigue, and they had not had many nights or days a dry thing to put on. Captain Fitzroy gave up the attempt to get westward by the outside coast. In the evening we ran in behind False Cape Horn, and dropped our anchor in forty-seven fathoms, fire flashing from the windlass as the chain rushed round it. How delightful was that still night, after having been so long involved in the din of the warring elements! January fifteenth, 1833 The Beagle anchored in Gorey Roads. Captain Fitzroy, having resolved to settle the Fuegians, according to their wishes, in Ponsonby Sound, four boats were equipped to carry them there through the Beagle Channel. This channel, which was discovered by Captain Fitzroy during the last voyage, is a most remarkable feature in the geography of this or indeed any other country. It may be compared to the valley of Loch Ness in Scotland, with its chain of lakes and friths. It is about one hundred and twenty miles long, with an average breadth not subject to any very great variation of about two miles, and is throughout the greater part so perfectly straight that the view, bounded on each side by a line of mountains, gradually becomes indistinct in the long distance. It crosses the southern part of Tierra del Fuego in an east and west line, and in the middle is joined at right angles on the south side by an irregular channel, which has been called Ponsonby Sound. This is the resident of Jemmy Button's tribe and family. 19th. Three whale-boats and the yawl, with a party of twenty-eight, started under the command of Captain Fitzroy. In the afternoon we entered the eastern mouth of the channel, and shortly afterwards found a snug little cove concealed by some surrounding islets. Here we pitched our tents and lighted our fires. Nothing could look more comfortable than this scene. The glassy water of the little harbour, with the branches of the trees hanging over the rocky beach, 
the boats at anchor, the tents supported by the crossed oars, and the smoke curling up the wooded valley formed a picture of quiet retirement. The next day, twentieth, we smoothly glided onwards in our little fleet, and came to a more inhabited district. Few, if any, of these natives could ever have seen a white man. Certainly nothing could exceed their astonishment at the apparition of the four boats. Fires were lighted on every point, hence the name of Tierra del Fuego, or the Land of Fire, both to attract our attention and to spread far and wide the news. Some of the men ran for miles along the shore. I shall never forget how wild and savage one group appeared. Suddenly, four or five men came to the edge of an overhanging cliff. They were absolutely naked, and their long hair streamed about their faces. They held rugged staffs in their hands, and springing from the ground they waved their arms round their heads, and sent forth the most hideous yells. At dinner-time we landed among a party of Fuegians. At first they were not inclined to be friendly, for until the captain pulled in ahead of the other boats they kept their slings in their hands. We soon, however, delighted them by trifling presents, such as tying red tape round their heads. They liked our biscuit, but one of the savages touched with his finger some of the meat preserved in tin cases which I was eating, and feeling it soft and cold, showed as much disgust at it as I should have done at putrid blubber. Jemmy was thoroughly ashamed of his countrymen, and declared his own tribe were quite different, in which he was woefully mistaken. It was as easy to please as it was difficult to satisfy these savages. Young and old, men and children, never ceased repeating the word, Yammerschooner, which means, Give me. After pointing to almost every object, one after the other, even to the buttons on our coats, and saying their favorite word in as many intonations as possible, they would then use it in a neuter sense, and vacantly repeat, Yammerschooner. After Yammerschoonering for any article very eagerly, they would, by a simple artifice, point to their young women or little children, as much as to say, If you will not give it to me, surely you will to such as these. At night we endeavored in vain to find an uninhabited cove, and at last were obliged to bivouac not far from a party of natives. They were very inoffensive as long as they were few in numbers, but in the morning, twenty-first, being joined by others, they showed symptoms of hostility, and we thought that we should have come to a skirmish. An European labors under great disadvantages when treating with savages like these, who have not the least idea of the power of firearms. In the very act of leveling his musket, he appears to the savage far inferior to a man armed with a bow and arrow, a spear, or even a sling. Nor is it easy to teach them our superiority except by striking a fatal blow. Like wild beasts, they do not appear to compare numbers, for each individual, if attacked, instead of retiring, will endeavor to dash your brains out with a stone, as certainly as a tiger under similar circumstances would tear you. Captain Fitzroy, on one occasion, being very anxious, from good reasons, to frighten away a small party, first flourished a cutlass near them, at which they only laughed. He then twice fired his pistol close to a native. The man both times looked astounded, and carefully but quickly rubbed his head. He then stared a while, and gabbled to his companions, but he never seemed to think of running away. We can hardly put ourselves in the position of these savages, and understand their actions. In the case of this Fuegian, the possibility of such a sound as the report of a gun close to his ear could never have entered his mind. He perhaps literally did not for a second know whether it was a sound or a blow, and therefore very naturally rubbed his head. In a similar manner, when a savage sees a mark struck by a bullet, it may be some time before he is able at all to understand how it is affected, for the fact of a body being invisible from its velocity would, perhaps, be to him an idea totally inconceivable. 
Moreover, the extreme force of a bullet that penetrates a hard substance without tearing it may convince the savage that it has no force at all. Certainly I believe that many savages of the lowest grade, such as those of Tierra del Fuego, have seen objects struck, and even small animals killed by the musket, without being in the least aware how deadly an instrument it is. 22nd. After having passed an unmolested night in what would appear to be neutral territory between Jemmy's tribe and the people whom we saw yesterday, we sailed pleasantly along. I do not know anything which shows more clearly the hostile state of the different tribes than these wide border or neutral tracts. Although Jemmy Button knew well the force of our party, he was, at first, unwilling to land amidst the hostile tribe nearest to his own. He often told us how the savage Owen's men, quote, when the leaf red, crossed the mountains from the eastern coast of Tierra del Fuego, and made inroads on the natives of this part of the country. It was most curious to watch him when thus talking, and see his eyes gleaming and his whole face assume a new and wild expression. As we proceeded along the Beagle Channel, the scenery assumed a peculiar and very magnificent character, but the effect was much lessened from the lowness of points of view in a boat, and from looking along the valley, and thus losing all the beauty in a succession of ridges. The mountains were here about three thousand feet high, and terminated in sharp and jagged points. They rose in one unbroken sweep from the water's edge, and were covered to the height of fourteen or fifteen hundred feet by the dusky-colored forest. It was most curious to observe, as far as the eye could range, how level and truly horizontal the line of the mountainside was, at which trees ceased to grow. It precisely resembled the high-water mark of driftweed on a sea-beach. At night we slept close to the junction of Ponsonby Sound with the Beagle Channel. A small family of Fuegians, who were living in the cove, were quiet and inoffensive, and soon joined our party round a blazing fire. We were well clothed, and though sitting close to the fire were far from too warm, yet these naked savages, though further off, were observed, to our great surprise, to be streaming with perspiration at undergoing such a roasting. They seemed, however, very well pleased, and all joined in the chorus of the seamen's songs, but the manner in which they were invariably a little behindhand was quite ludicrous. During the night the news had spread, and early in the morning, 23rd, a fresh party arrived, belonging to the Tekanika, or Jemmy's tribe. Several of them had run so fast that their noses were bleeding, and their mouths frothed from the rapidity with which they talked, and with their naked bodies all bedaubed with black, white, and red, they looked like so many demoniacs who had been fighting. Footnote to the word white. This substance, when dry, is tolerably compact, and of little specific gravity. Professor Ehrenberg has examined it. He states, König Agad de Wissen, Berlin, February 1845, that it is composed of infusoria, including fourteen polygastrica and four phytolatharia. He says that they are all inhabitants of fresh water. This is a beautiful example of the results obtainable through Professor Ehrenberg's microscopic researches, for Jemmy Button told me that it is always collected at the bottom of mountain brooks. It is, moreover, a striking fact that in the geographical distribution of the infusoria, which are well known to have very wide ranges, that all the species in this substance, although brought from the extreme southern point of Tierra del Fuego, are old known forms. End footnote. We then proceeded, accompanied by twelve canoes, each holding four or five people, down Ponsonby Sound to the spot where poor Jemmy expected to find his mother and relatives. He had already heard that his father was dead, but as he had, quote, a dream in his head, to that effect, he did not seem to care much about it. 
and repeatedly comforted himself with the very natural reflection, me no help it. He was not able to learn any particulars regarding his father's death, as his relations would not speak about it. Jemmy was now in a district well known to him, and guided the boats to a quiet pretty cove named Woolia, surrounded by islets, every one of which and every point had its proper native name. We found here a family of Jemmy's tribe, but not his relations. We made friends with them, and in the evening they sent a canoe to inform Jemmy's mother and brothers. The cove was bordered by some acres of good sloping land, not covered, as elsewhere, either by peat or by forest trees. Captain Fitzroy originally intended, as before stated, to have taken York Minster and Fuegia to their own tribe on the west coast, but as they expressed a wish to remain here, and as the spot was singularly favourable, Captain Fitzroy determined to settle here the whole party, including Matthews the missionary. Five days were spent in building for them three large wigwams, in landing their goods, in digging two gardens, and sowing seeds. The next morning after our arrival, the twenty-fourth, the Fuegians began to pour in, and Jemmy's mother and brothers arrived. Jemmy recognized the stentorian voice of one of his brothers at a prodigious distance. The meeting was less interesting than that between a horse turned out into a field when he joins an old companion. There was no demonstration of affection. They simply stared for a short time at each other, and the mother immediately went to look after her canoe. We heard, however, through York, that the mother has been inconsolable for the loss of Jemmy, and had searched everywhere for him, thinking he might have been left after having been taken in the boat. The women took much notice of, and were very kind to Fuegia. We had already perceived that Jemmy had almost forgotten his own language. I should think there was scarcely another human being with so small a stock of language, for his English was very imperfect. It was laughable, but almost pitiable, to hear him speak to his wild brother in English, and then asked him in Spanish, No sabe? whether he did not understand him. Everything went on peaceably during the three next days, whilst the gardens were digging and wigwams building. We estimated the number of natives at about one hundred and twenty. The women worked hard, whilst the men lounged about all day, watching us. They asked for everything they saw, and stole what they could. They were delighted at our dancing and singing, and were particularly interested at seeing us wash in a neighboring brook. They did not pay much attention to anything else, not even to our boats. Of all the things which York saw during his absence from his country, nothing seems more to have astonished him than an ostrich near Maldonado. Breathless with astonishment, he came running to Mr. Bino, with whom he was out walking. "'Oh, Mr. Bino! Oh, bird all same horse!' Much as our white skins surprised the natives, by Mr. Lowe's account, a negro cook to a sealing vessel did so more effectually, and the poor fellow was so mobbed and shouted at that he would never go on shore again. Everything went on so quietly that some of the officers and myself took long walks in the surrounding hills and woods. Suddenly, however, on the twenty-seventh, every woman and child disappeared. We were all uneasy at this, as neither York nor Jemmy could make out the cause. It was thought by some that they had been frightened by our cleaning and firing off our muskets on the previous evening, by others that it was owing to offence taken by an old savage, who, when told to keep further off, had coolly spit in the sentry's face, and had then, by gestures acted over a sleeping Fuegian, plainly showed, as it was said, that he should like to cut up and eat our man. Captain Fitzroy, to avoid the chance of an encounter which would have been fatal to so many of the Fuegians, thought it advisable for us to sleep at a cove a few miles distant. Matthews, with his usual quiet fortitude, remarkable in a man apparently possessing little energy of character, determined to stay with the Fuegians, who evinced no alarm for themselves, 
and so we left them to pass their first awful night. On our return in the morning, 28th, we were delighted to find all quiet, and the men employed in their canoes spearing fish. Captain Fitzroy determined to send the yawl and one whaleboat back to the ship, and to proceed with the two other boats, one under his own command, in which he most kindly allowed me to accompany him, and one under Mr. Hammond, to survey the western parts of the Beagle Channel, and afterwards to return and visit the settlement. The day, to our astonishment, was overpoweringly hot, so that our skins were scorched. With this beautiful weather, the view in the middle of the Beagle Channel was very remarkable. Looking towards either hand, no object intercepted the vanishing points of this long canal between the mountains. The circumstance of its being an arm of the sea was rendered very evident by several huge whales spouting in different directions. Footnote. One day, off the east coast of Tierra del Fuego, we saw a grand sight in several spermacetti whales jumping upright quite out of the water, with the exception of their tail-fins. As they fell down sideways, they splashed the water high up, and the sound reverberated like a distant broadside. End footnote. On one occasion I saw two of these monsters, probably male and female, slowly swimming one after the other, within less than a stone's throw of the shore, over which the beech-tree extended its branches. We sailed on till it was dark, and then pitched our tents in a quiet creek. The greatest luxury was to find for our beds a beach of pebbles, for they were dry and yielded to the body. Peaty soil is damp, rock is uneven and hard, sand gets in one's meat when cooked and eaten boat-fashion. But when lying in our blanket bags on a good bed of smooth pebbles, we passed most comfortable nights. It was my watch till one o'clock. There is something very solemn in these scenes. At no time does the consciousness in what a remote corner of the world you are then standing come so strongly before the mind. Everything tends to this effect. The stillness of the night is interrupted only by the heavy breathing of the seamen beneath the tents, and sometimes the cry of a night bird. The occasional barking of a dog, heard in the distance, reminds one that it is the land of the savage. January 20th Early in the morning we arrived at the point where the Beagle Channel divides into two arms, and we entered the northern one. The scenery here becomes even grander than before. The lofty mountains on the north side compose the granitic axis, or backbone of the country, and boldly rise to a height of between three and four thousand feet, with one peak above six thousand feet. They are covered by a wide mantle of perpetual snow, and numerous cascades pour their waters through the woods into the narrow channel below. In many parts, magnificent glaciers extend from the mountainside to the water's edge. It is scarcely possible to imagine anything more beautiful than the barrel-like blue of these glaciers, and especially as contrasted with the dead white of the upper expanse of snow. The fragments which had fallen from the glacier onto the water were floating away, and the channel with its icebergs presented, for the space of a mile, a miniature likeness of the polar sea. The boats being hauled on shore at our dinner hour, we were admiring from the distance of half a mile a perpendicular cliff of ice, and were wishing that some more fragments would fall. At last down came a mass with a roaring noise, and immediately we saw the smooth outline of a wave travelling towards us. The men ran down as quickly as they could to the boats, for the chance of their being dashed to pieces was evident. One of the seamen just caught hold of the bows as the curling breaker reached it. He was knocked over and over, but not hurt, and the boats, though thrice lifted on high and let fall again, received no damage. 
This was most fortunate for us, for we were a hundred miles distant from the ship, and we should have been left without provisions or firearms. I had previously observed that some large fragments of rock on the beach had been lately displaced, but until seeing this wave I did not understand the cause. One side of the creek was formed by a spur of mica slate, the head of a cliff of ice about forty feet high, and the other side by a promontory fifty feet high, built up of huge rounded fragments of granite and mica slate, out of which old trees were growing. This promontory was evidently a moraine, heaped up at a period when the glacier had greater dimensions. When we reached the western mouth of this northern branch of the Beagle Channel, we sailed amongst many unknown desolate islands, and the weather was wretchedly bad. We met with no natives. The coast was almost everywhere so steep that we had several times to pull many miles before we could find space enough to pitch our two tents. One night we slept on large round boulders, with putrefying seaweed between them, and when the tide rose we had to get up and move our blanket bags. The furthest point westward which we reached was Stewart Island, a distance of about one hundred and fifty miles from our ship. We returned into the Beagle Channel by the southern arm, and thence proceeded, with no adventure, back to Ponsonby Sound. February 6th. We arrived at Woolia. Matthews gave so bad an account of the conduct of the Fuegians that Captain Fitzroy determined to take him back to the Beagle, and ultimately he was left at New Zealand, where his brother was a missionary. From the time of our leaving, a regular system of plunder commenced. Fresh parties of the natives kept arriving. York and Jemmy lost many things, and Matthews almost everything which had not been concealed underground. Every article seemed to have been torn up and divided by the natives. Matthews described the watch he was obliged always to keep as most harassing. Night and day he was surrounded by the natives, who tried to tire him out by making an incessant noise close to his head. One day an old man, whom Matthews asked to leave his wigwam, immediately returned with a large stone in his hand. Another day a whole party came armed with stones and stakes, and some of the younger men and Jemmy's brother were crying. Matthew met them with presents. Another party showed by signs that they wished to strip him naked and pluck all the hairs out of his face and body. I think we had arrived just in time to save his life. Jemmy's relatives had been so vain and foolish that they had showed to strangers their plunder and their manner of obtaining it. It was quite melancholy leaving the three Fuegians with their savage countrymen, but it was a great comfort that they had no personal fears. York, being a powerful, resolute man, was pretty sure to get on well, together with his wife Fuegia. Poor Jemmy looked rather disconsolate, and would then, I have little doubt, have been glad to have returned with us. His own brother had stolen many things from him, and, as he remarked, "'What fashion call that?' he abused his countrymen. "'All bad men, no sabe, no, nothing.' And, though I never heard him swear before, "'Damned fools!' Our three Fuegians, though they had only been three years with civilized men, would, I am sure, have been glad to have retained their new habits." but this was obviously impossible. I fear it is more than doubtful whether their visit will have been of any use to them. In the evening, with Matthews on board, we made sail back to the ship, not by the Beagle Channel, but by the southern coast. The boats were heavily laden, and the sea rough, and we had a dangerous passage. By the evening of the seventh we were on board the Beagle after an absence of twenty days, during which time we had gone three hundred miles in the open boats. On the eleventh, Captain Fitzroy paid a visit by himself to the Fuegians, and found them going on well, and that they had lost very few more things. On the last day of February in the succeeding year, 1834, the Beagle anchored in a beautiful little cove at the eastern entrance of the Beagle Channel. 
Captain Fitzroy determined on the bold, and as it proved successful, attempt to beat against the westerly winds by the same route, which we had followed in the boats to the settlement at Woolia. We did not see many natives until we were near Ponsonby Sound, where we were followed by ten or twelve canoes. The natives did not at all understand the reason of our tacking, and instead of meeting us at each tack, vainly strove to follow us in our zigzag course. I was amused at finding what a difference the circumstance of being quite superior in force made in the interest of beholding these savages, while in the boats I got to hate the very sound of their voices, so much trouble did they give us. The first and last word was Yammer Schooner. When, entering some quiet little cove, we have looked round and thought to pass a quiet night, the odious word Yammerschooner has shrilly sounded from some gloomy nook, and then the little signal smoke has curled up to spread the news far and wide. On leaving some place we have said to each other, Thank heaven we have at last fairly left these wretches, when one more faint hallo from an all-powerful voice, heard at a prodigious distance, would reach our ears, and clearly we could distinguish Yammerschooner. But now the more Fuegians the merrier, and very merry work it was, both parties laughing, wondering, gaping at each other, we pitying them for giving us good fish and crabs, for rags, etc., they grasping at the chance of finding people so foolish as to exchange such splendid ornaments for a good supper. It was most amusing to see the undisguised smile of satisfaction with which one young woman with her face painted black tied several bits of scarlet cloth round her head with rushes. Her husband, who enjoyed the very universal privilege in this country of possessing two wives, evidently became jealous of all the attention paid to his young wife, and after a consultation with his naked beauties, was paddled away by them. Some of the Fuegians plainly showed that they had a fair notion of barter. I gave one man a large nail, a most valuable present, without making any signs for a return, but he immediately picked out two fish, and handed them up on the point of his spear. If any present was designed for one canoe and it fell near another, it was invariably given to the right owner. The Fuegian boy, whom Mr. Lowe had on board showed, by going into the most violent passion, that he quite understood the reproach of being called a liar, which in truth he was, we were this time, as on all former occasions, much surprised at the little notice, or rather none whatever, which was taken of many things, the use of which must have been evident to the natives. Simple circumstances, such as the beauty of scarlet cloth or blue beads, the absence of women, our care in washing ourselves, excited their admiration far more than any grand or complicated object, such as our ship. Bougainville has well remarked concerning these people, that they treat the chef d'oeuvre de l'industrie humaine comme il traite les lois de la nature et ses phénomènes. On the 5th of March we anchored in a cove at Woolia, but we saw not a soul there. We were alarmed at this, for the natives in Ponsonby Sound showed by gestures that there had been fighting, and we afterwards heard that the dreaded Owens men had made a descent. Soon a canoe with a little flag flying was seen approaching, with one of the men in it washing the paint off his face. This man was poor Jemmy, now a thin, haggard savage, with long, disordered hair, and naked except a bit of blanket round his waist. We did not recognize him till he was close to us, for he was ashamed of himself, and turned his back to the ship. We had left him plump, fat, clean, and well-dressed. I never saw so complete and grievous a change. As soon, however, as he was clothed, and the first flurry was over, things wore a good appearance. He dined with Captain Fitzroy, and ate his dinner as tidily as formerly. He told us that he had too much, meaning enough, to eat, that he was not cold, that his relations were very good people, 
and that he did not wish to go back to England. In the evening we found out the cause of this great change in Jemmy's feelings, in the arrival of his young and nice-looking wife. With the usual good feeling he brought two beautiful otter-skins for two of his best friends, and some spearheads and arrows made with his own hands for the captain. He said he had built a canoe for himself, and he boasted that he could talk a little of his own language. But it is a most singular fact that he appears to have taught all his tribe some English. An old man spontaneously announced, Jemmy Button's wife. Jemmy had lost all his property. He told us that York Minster had built a large canoe, and with his wife Fuegia had several months since gone to his own country, and had taken farewell by an act of consummate villainy. He persuaded Jemmy and his mother to come with them, and then on the way deserted them by night, stealing every article of their property. Footnote. Captain Sullivan, who, since his voyage in the Beagle, has been employed on the survey of the Falkland Islands, heard from a sealer in 1842 that when in the western part of the Strait of Magellan he was astonished by a native woman coming on board who could talk some English. Without doubt, this was Fuegia Basket. She lived, I fear the term probably bears a double interpretation, some days on board. End footnote. Jemmy went to sleep on shore, and in the morning returned, and remained on board till the ship got under way, which frightened his wife, who continued crying violently till he got into his canoe. He returned, loaded with valuable property. Every soul on board was heartily sorry to shake hands with him for the last time. I do not now doubt that he will be as happy as, perhaps happier than, if he had never left his own country. Every one must sincerely hope that Captain Fitzroy's noble hope may be fulfilled, of being rewarded for the many generous sacrifices which he made for these Fuegians, by some shipwrecked sailor being protected by the descendants of Jemmy Button and his tribe. When Jemmy reached the shore, he lighted a signal fire, and the smoke curled up, bidding us a last and long farewell as the ship stood on her course into the open sea. The perfect equality among the individuals composing the Fuegian tribes must for a long time retard their civilization. As we see those animals whose instinct compels them to live in society and obey a chief are most capable of improvement, so it is with the races of mankind. Whether we look at it as a cause or a consequence, the more civilized always have the most artificial governments. For instance, the inhabitants of Otaheite, who, when first discovered, were governed by hereditary kings, had arrived at a far higher grade than another branch of the same people, the New Zealanders, who, although benefited by being compelled to turn their attention to agriculture, were republicans in the most absolute sense. In Tierra del Fuego, until some chief shall arise with power sufficient to secure any acquired advantage, such as the domesticated animals, it seems scarcely possible that the political state of the country can be improved. At present, even a piece of cloth given to one is torn to shreds and distributed, and no one individual becomes richer than another. On the other hand, it is difficult to understand how a chief can arise till there is property of some sort by which he might manifest his superiority and increase his power. I believe, in this extreme part of South America, man exists in a lower state of improvement than in any other part of the world. The South Sea Islanders, of the two races inhabiting the Pacific, are comparatively civilized. The Eskimo, in his subterranean hut, enjoys some of the comforts of life, and in his canoe, when fully equipped, manifests much skill. Some of the tribes of southern Africa, prowling about in search of roots, and living concealed on the wild and arid plains, are sufficiently wretched. The Australian, in the simplicity of the arts of life, comes nearest the Fuegian, 
He can, however, boast of his boomerang, his spear and throwing stick, his method of climbing trees, of tracking animals, and of hunting. Although the Australian may be superior in acquirements, it by no means follows that he is likewise superior in mental capacity. Indeed, from what I saw of the Fueguines when on board, and from what I have read of the Australians, I should think the case was exactly the reverse. End of chapter 10, part 2